after the mid-80s, when Duran Duran breaks up, for all intents and purposes, uh, the drummer Roger Taylor decides he's had enough with pop life and he's going to be a family man. So he just leaves. He exits the stage. Andy Taylor, the guitarist, uh, you can see in the Power Station clips in the previous video, was very much enjoying uh, rock stardom. Uh, he had he had some significant substance abuse issues that were already starting to crop up. What happened is that he had a lot of people in LA, a lot of music industry moguls who were in his ear and telling him he could be a fucking superstar, Andy fucking Taylor. So uh, he went out and became a hair metal casualty. He did a really truly embarrassing solo album because he couldn't really even sing. Uh, the amount of vocal treatment on that record is pretty amazing. I actually wrote about it as an example of how far you could take uh, synthesized vocal sweetening in the 80s. Take it easy, there ain't no one else, don't give me reasons, and I won't ask for nothing. Take it easy. So Simon Le Bon, Nick Rhodes, and John Taylor became Duran Duran. And with Notorious, they were not really credited for the strength of the work on that album. With any massive band that has, you know, like a nine record catalog or more, after you've had your initial fame, each record sort of becomes an overreaction to the record before it. Because you A, B against all the things that bothered you about the previous record. Like, let's say you were doing too much coke and there was too much trouble, or you were drinking too much and the bass was really overdriven and, and muddy. With Duran Duran, it wasn't really a question of production minutiae because they had always been a synth pop band. And so the sounds were always electronic. So there's no sonic questions, analog questions that are going to drag the production process, you know, into the mire. The issues that Duran Duran were facing as a trio were they had gone through a number of different individual experiences. When they were broken up, Nick Rhodes had spent a lot of time with Andy Warhol. Um, he had, you know, dined with him, but he'd also done television interviews with him, and he was very interested in fashion, which is obvious because he's been dressing like a 16-year-old Elizabethan girl since he was, you know, 18. Um, he really pushed the fashion thing, so that became his talking point in his territory. He wanted the band to become much more fashionable than they had been with Notorious, where they were kind of conservatively, blandly, you know, in suits and bouffant hair. So Nick's pushing that angle, but I also, there's another part to Nick Rhodes that doesn't get nearly enough attention, which is that Nick is sort of the experimental guy. He's got a lot more ties to the kind of, you know, Vince Clark, Erasure, early 80s, Human League, um, you know, an OMD period, Nick is, is sort of the experimental guy, sonically. So those two components are sort of what Nick is bringing to the table. The eagerness to interface with high fashion and, a, you know, an affinity for avant-garde early electronic pop. John Taylor is really getting into the depths of a pretty serious cocaine problem, which is soundly evidenced in video footage from the time. Simon is a... It's more animal, I think. Um, he has a more instinctive way of working. Um, we're all kind of pretty obsessive. Um, but, uh, yeah, I hate that question. <laughs> 
when they're doing promotional interviews for Big Thing, he has become such a gaunt, chiseled skeleton that, I mean, his chin is like, it's like a computer-generated angle. I mean, I have a, I'm a little jealous, I'll be honest. You know, people change. Uh, a group such as ours that comes under so much of a comes under such a microscope in terms of you know well, what do they wear, well, what is their personal style, and whatever. It's, I mean, we're just we're, we're just we're into clothes, or into we're into fashion. We tend to think we're fairly modern thinking people. He's got like yellow eyeliner here, accentuating the bottom of his the orbits of his eyes. Um, which makes it even more terrifying. So he is really far out there. He doesn't go into rehab until after the tour and the next record. Simon LeBon is kind of, you know, he's plucky. That's his thing. Simon LeBon is sort of up for it. He's going to make it so that everything works because he's the front man and he's, you know, the dreamy, sensual, you know, pretty boy. Um, None of this stuff is intimidating to him, um, and he just kind of rolls with it. And he's sort of the glue in that way. Now, I mentioned, you know, the pluckiness that he brought to the table. That's one of the qualities that grounds my conviction that Big Thing is a really appreciable record. Because they somehow accepted that they weren't as big as they had been. You know, with, the, with the stage that the band's in at the moment, I mean, we don't know who we're going to be playing to. We don't know whether we're going to be playing to a sold-out crowd or a half-empty hall or a nightclub or a, a baseball stadium. It's like up and down with this band at the moment. You know, there's no. They sort of resign themselves to, you know, we're not playing in front of 50,000 people probably ever again. We're going to play in front of 10. We're going to still get to go into hotels and we'll still make a ton of money, but we're not going to get that same hysterical fan reaction anymore. That's all going to kind of tone itself down. We're going to get an older fan base. And if we really love pop music, we're going to have to figure out a way to work within pop music as it exists now. Knowing that house music was completely exploding, they prepared a trendy white label um, 12 inch in advance of Big Thing. They listed the artist's name as the Crush Brothers and they called it the LSD Edit, which they cheekily ended up making a song title Lakeshore Driving. Um, Nobody's ever thought of doing anything like that before. It was really ridiculous because they combined two songs, The Edge of America, which is an acoustic song toward the end of the record, with Simon Le Bon's voice put way out front, and this um, kind of really middling, pseudo-half-tempo stomping thing. It was, it was far away from house music, or at that time, balearic music was becoming a thing, uh, as you really could have gotten. Uh, so it was very strange because it was sort of just a gesture. You know, you had this 12-inch, this white-label 12-inch come out, but the music that was on it had nothing to do with the culture that it was designed for. This is doubly strange because a lot of the music they had made for Big Thing spoke very well to what was going on in house music. Particularly, there's a remix of uh, All She Wants Is that they called something like the Euro House Mix that sounds exactly like New Order's Technique. The New Order's Technique is really the only legitimate balearic album ever. You know, you can say what you want, but they were there 
at Ibiza, they were there when it was all going on. They took all of those sounds of that period of house music and they made a pop album out of it, Technique. But this remix of All She Wants Is is right in that ballpark. Um, and it was consigned to a 12-inch and it's now come out on the deluxe edition, a big thing. Much like the more aggressive mix of Drug that John Taylor had lobbied to be the first single, this mix of All She Wants Is, is it's, a, it's a bit overlong and you can just tell it's somebody looping through, you know, track. But you know, a number of the, the notes they strike there, this album preceded technique. You know, they were kind of on the, the ball there. I mentioned in the first segment that we had three strong singles. I Don't Want Your Love, All She Wants Is, and Do You Believe in Shame. The first two did reasonably well. All She Wants Is got a lot of attention on MTV in America because it was, you know, a groundbreaking video, a collection of still shots. I Don't Want Your Love had done fine, but All She Wants Is was probably the most successful single. The follow-up, Do You Believe in Shame, it had a very sullen wash to it. It's quite beautiful. One of the most interesting things about Do You Believe in Shame is that it essentially derailed Duran Duran's career because it is a rewrite of the Dale Hawkins Delta Blues classic, Suzy Q. I'm sure Duran Duran at some point had heard that song, but uh, it's entirely possible that they didn't. Uh, they certainly didn't, you know, drive around with it in the van. I mean, that just wasn't the school of music that they were attuned to. What happened is they fell victim to a prevailing trend. Now, Public Enemy and the Beastie Boys and a ton of other hip-hop artists were getting absolutely skinned alive in the courts by the rights holders of the recordings they were sampling. Nobody gave a shit about this in the early 80s because hip-hop wasn't a big deal in the early 80s. They were very happy to leave it ghettoized, right? But when hip-hop got on the radio, following Run DMC's crossover with Aerosmith, all of a sudden, these guys were looking at paydays they weren't getting. So they, you know, they didn't give a shit when no one was listening to these records, but the second these records were making money, they wanted their cut. So James Brown, funky drummer, the Beastie Boys get destroyed on Paul's Boutique, and then when the Levee Breaks is also getting used everywhere, John Denver sues New Order over the song Run 2. Well, you don't get a turn like this So here's what you got to do You'll work your way to the top of the world the way they cut and pasted the different progressions in the song and reassembled them accidentally recreated the main guitar lick of Leaving on a Jet Plane by John Denver. And he sued them and he won. The taxi's waiting, he's blown his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could die So kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you wait for me Hold me like you never let me go Run 2 carries a songwriting credit from John Denver. This was especially difficult for British artists because the British courts were extremely prejudiced toward 
this notion of originality. So Duran Duran had to settle that. They had to add Dale Hawkins as a co-writer to Do You Believe in Shame? And it just sort of drove a nail in what was going on. They were pushing a number of different looks and a number of different talking points, but it became a problem because Duran Duran wasn't a band that people were looking to. No one was looking at Duran Duran like, oh yeah, they're going to make sense of all this. It was a moment where things were completely going underground. Duran Duran were really, I think they were really out in front on this. I'm not saying the material they made as a result of their foresight um, is prophetic in any way, but if you listen to it and you try and reconstruct what was around at the time, there's only a couple of truly egregious slip-ups here. One is the first song, the title track, Big Thing. Uh, the band are well on record as saying this is, lyrically at least, one of the biggest pieces of shit in their catalog. What's really obvious to me looking back is that they were trying to replicate the opening track of In Excess's Kick, Guns in the Sky. The song had a kind of a, a rebel air to it because you're also the pmrc hearings are occurring in america and you're about to get this fucking parental advisory sticker slapped on your record if you say one bad word so the fact that in excess's major crossover record contains shit in the first song was a pretty big deal the cure had this problem with kiss me kiss me kiss me because the first song the kiss you know has the word fucking in it big thing doesn't really have any swears on it but stylistically there's really not much of a question that that title track is, you know, soundly a part of either company thinking or even the band thinking that this is how NXS let off their album. Their album is running the fucking show right now. We probably should do that too. That comes and goes. You get I Don't Want Your Love, which the album mix is very subdued compared to what Shep Hettybun did. Now, Shep Hettybun is like one of my favorite remixers. You know, Arthur Baker is the first half of the 80s. Shep Hettybun, and there's a couple of this, but I mean, he, the mix Shep Hettybun did of True Faith, which ended up consigned to like a 12 inch in the UK, but in America was part of the promotional thrust and was, I think, the lead track on the Bright Lights Big City soundtrack in 1988. That remix remains one of my favorite New Order tracks, just full stop. He constructed like whole new melodies uh, and bridges out of the existing tracks. And I really think he, he took something that New Order had done and made it even more dynamic and even more compelling. He did the same thing for I Don't Want Your Love. He made that song explode. Um, All She Wants is didn't really benefit as much from the single mix, what they called the 45 mix. One, it was way too long. All She Wants is, is four and a half minutes long. Um, that's absurd. There's no way that song should have been longer than three and a half minutes. Um, it's just like a big synth wash and some interesting, you know, syncopation. One of the struggles they had is that every single member of this band had been basically an industry unto themselves. And so they were coming at this from a much more experienced and a much more ego-driven place, particularly John Taylor. During the breakup, you know, he had done Power Station, which was much more successful than Arcadia, but he had done something else. Um, which is one of the absolute cliche pitfalls of superstar musicians, or at least it was back then. He did a soundtrack. He did the soundtrack to Adrian Lyne's Nine and a Half Weeks, which was a softcore porn film um, that was a massive international success. It was just one of those moments where, you know, an adult film was like chic. 
and everyone went to see it. Um, now, what you needed at that time, because of the film and off certain gentlemen, is you needed against all odds. You needed a huge ballad to be the backbone to get on MTV and the radio, to be the backbone of a promotional arm of your movie. The song they got for this was called I Do What I Do. Someone convinced John Taylor that not only should he, you know, compose and perform the song, he should sing on it. It's my party beats, the right tried to come up with a concept for showing footage of the film, you know, but without being so obvious. So then we came upon the idea of filming it as if it was in a cinema. He was wearing a lot of really big scarves at this time. Now, I don't want to get too sarcastic here. John Taylor eventually took the, the better work that he had done for this film, which was not really assembled in any um, positive way. He self-released it. Um, he called it Resume, and he self-released it in the late 2000s. It's actually very good. Um, but, you know, at the time, that's not what came out. What came out was a pretty hoary, um, awful ballad. John Taylor's gone through his experiences. Everyone's got their egos. There's no one there to guide them. There's no producer. There's no strong producer in any case. And so the album becomes kind of a spin-out. They manage to get some very strong singles together. Um, and that's the first half of the album. The second half of the album kind of falls off a cliff. In retrospect, it seems that Nick Rhodes sort of picked up the pieces and put together this very, you know, dreamy, washy, heavily synth um, second side of Big Thing to get the album in the can. There are three solid songs there. One of them they just never finished properly, Palomino. Uh, there's really great moments and passages in Palomino, but they were never able to kind of assemble them and turn them into as resounding a, a track as it could have been. Um, but then there's Land, which is, again, similar to All She Wants, is just far too overlong for what it is. And then you have things like Flute Interlude, Interlude 1, and, and they even recorded a spoken word piece. Simon LeBond did a spoken word piece for this album, which they were like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. It's, but it's on the reissue, the deluxe reissue on the second CD. There was just a lot of self-expression from each individual. And it didn't end up being cohesive, but for, you know, let's say the five obvious singles that were put together. That doesn't take much away from this record for me. Because you're coming into a place where CNC Music Factory is about to happen, where MC Hammer is just like doing G-rated rap over pre-existing hits. Um, it's some of the shallowest times in the history of pop music. I mean, seriously, I'm not overstating that. You were lucky if you got two good songs on a CD. They had set the bar and set your expectations so low that you were going to go pay $12.99 for a CD that had one good song on it, and fuck you. Duran Duran were not that cynical. They got into the studio. They could have, you know, just absolutely phoned it in and done nothing. And, you know, that's sort of what happened with Liberty. But they didn't. They fought through it, and they, they really believed in the tracks that were going on on Big Thing. They weren't in the right place, probably, you know, personally, emotionally, creatively, to come up with their best effort. But they came up with something pretty substantial on their own. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for it. Critics said that your, uh, your album, Big Thing, is your best album. Do you think this also? Do you think so? Yeah? Yeah, we do, absolutely. Le he dicho que para muchos críticos su último trabajo, Big Thing, es su mejor LP y ellos dicen que también.